Hi, this is A Private View. I'm your host, Maeve Doyle. Uh, we are a weekly podcast that covers the art world, the art market, artists, curators, critics, collectors, auction house experts, and other individuals who blur what is and isn't the art world. We're in November 2020. A lot of this year has been in lockdown and new ways of working in the art world are uh, come, becoming part of the norm. Words that didn't exist to the extent they exist now are part of the everyday. So virtual viewing rooms, digital platforms, remote recordings. How quickly we've adapted to all of this. Uh, I am talking today to Carl Hopgood. He's a British-born Los Angeles-based sculptor, set designer, video artist, installation, neon artist, uh, of a contemporary Bruce Nauman, if he wouldn't mind. I know he's heard it before and we'll discuss it when Carl comes on the line. Carl studied at Goldsmiths under the influence of Michael Craig Martin. He's best known for his digital taxidermy work and in 1994 he had a solo show with Karsten Schubert, the legendary Karsten Schubert. Karsten Schubert is legendary because he was the important mediator in the world of the YBAs. He tried to extract the purer aspects of the phenomenon and media frenzy around the YBAs. Uh, I can't wait to hear what Carl's experience was in 94. It was also a year he had another important show at Waddington Custo on Cork Street. Um, Carl's been in Los Angeles for a few years now, and I'd love to know how he feels about the differences between working in the two places, um, what Goldsmiths gave him, his upcoming shows, and uh, anything else he wants to talk to us about. I'm hoping you're there. Carl, are you there? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Hello. How is Los Angeles um, this morning? I'm well, thank you. It's nice and sunny here in Los Angeles. So we went through some questions when we talked on the phone, and I didn't want to over-talk with you too much because sure. there's so much that's quite exciting about what what you do. I mean, one of the things that's most exciting for me is you refuse to be categorized as one thing or another, uh, not dissimilar to people like Rashid Johnson. You didn't let your work become about painting or about sculpture or about neon you seem to take your ideas into whatever medium suits you can you discuss that well yeah i think um that initially came from when i was at goldsmiths and um we didn't have to specialize in any particular area like we didn't have to do painting or sculpture we could basically do, use whatever medium we wanted. And they sort of encouraged that to express our ideas. And I used to work um, with Noski DeVille and Steve McQueen in the uh, film department. And um, there was a lot of crossover. And at the time people were like, well, what do you, what do, you do? And it, you know, it sort of, it was quite unusual to work in all those different areas, but it's just the way I, I always sort of worked. I think and, one of uh, the things that stands out is that the idea was what was important, not so much uh, the craft that you were working away at, but the concept behind it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially um, 
some of the medium as well was often sort of very sort of basic. Like we, I used to use Super 8 film and we didn't have the video projectors back then in 1994 were like the three bulb giant video projectors. And of course now we have these tiny little mini projectors that I use for all my digital taxidermy work. And um, so in order to get the same sort of like crispness, we would use the Super 8 films and the projections and the loops and and they kept snapping and, and we'd have to like re-splice them and but it it felt felt very sort of it was about the material and the fragility and that was sort of also what was interesting but at the same time it just would have got to represent your ideas really clearly so I like that aspect of it. Yeah there's a quote I read by Adrian Searle about you and medium. Hopgood's work depends as much on the awkwardness of his medium as on the novelty of the spectacle. Yes and I think that was basically um, the, the, the projectors became the work's life support machine and I remember when I did the show at Carson Schubert, well when I had the show at Goldsmiths actually and I did um, I had made plaster casts of my friends' heads and I had them floating from the ceiling and I always had the projectors floating and they were hanging on a series of cables. It was very dangerous. I don't think it would pass any code today. Um, I miss then, those days. Oh, gosh, I know. It was just... <laughs> and I remember the night before the show, somebody had actually walked into one of my projectors and it had just fallen on the floor and it had smashed into pieces. <laughs> But I was like, it's okay, you know, we'll just fix it. And we managed to sort of tape it back together and everything was fine. But um, so I had these massive loops and you walked in and you could just see all these whirring loops. And I think, you know, they did have actually um, proper machines. When I went to the Tate, I remember seeing these amazing sort of loop machines that they had. But obviously I didn't really have access to that. So I just did the old fashioned loop. So sometimes it was like a 10 foot loop with these cogs just floating in the ceiling. It was very precarious. I don't, so I think- Was when this I had at Karsten Schubert's gallery? Yeah, well, I, I did the degree show in 1994 and then lots, there was a lot of interest in our year and then we had lots of galleries come and I ended up doing like a double show with Karsten Schubert and Waddington galleries at the same time. And the show was called Arrivals Departures. Uh, and and so was we, the piece Can Can Dancers part of that? No, the the Can Can dancers came at a later date. So, what was uh, the Karsten show like? And if you don't mind, because he's one of the last old school dealers. I know Sadie Coles as well is very involved with artists. Oh, but what yeah. was it like to work with Karsten? Um, it was very inspiring, and you know, and any of my ideas, he'd be like, "Yeah, that sounds great." He was just, he was a real sort of just make it happen kind of person. He was really, you know, encouraging and a real mentor for the work. And um, we, sh we showed um, the shower piece, which which he bought from my degree show. Um, well, I'd that heard really... that Charles Saatchi was interested in that piece. He was, yeah, we, ha we had the piece in a, basically it was like um, a plaster cast of um, a man standing in a little cubicle, which was about five, four foot by four foot. And there was an open door, and um, basically at my degree show, Charles Sarchi sort of walked, squeezed inside and um, wanted to see what was on the other side because you could only see the behind. And then it was a 16 millimeter projection onto the 
a white plaster cast. So it looked as if there was a real person inside. And um, I didn't know who that was. I just said, oh, excuse me, do you mind, you know, sort of not going in there? And he was like, and everyone was like, did you know who that was? And, um, and he's he wanted- huge. Like he's yeah, not only exactly. reputationally huge, he's a physically yeah. huge man. Yeah, and I was really worried that he was going to knock it over because this was the preview preview before the actual show had opened. So I was just terrified. But in the end, Carson Schubert beat him to it and you know, started my journey with him. So oh, lucky I guess you. everything happens for a reason. I was thinking of, I'm jumping around a bit because there's so much to you. And part of me wonders about you and timing because you seem like you are way ahead of your time, like way ahead of the time that you were born in, yet you're also part of it. So uh, when I see your work, I think of things that are so current now, like gender fluidity and uh, masculinity issues and um, a lot of the things that men are dealing with openly now at the time weren't really part of what was going on in the 90s. Yeah, I think um, the works that I was sort of making, they were kind of, it was quite taboo in a way, the fact that I was, you know, making these sculptures of naked men and, and it was, it didn't really feel sort of very fashionable it was just it was just the work that I wanted to make and it was very blokish then I remember like I don't think words like toxic masculinity exist then you know there was a lot of machismo at the time and your work is so different from that yeah I think people used to they were also the the work the figures looked very androgynous and I remember like my dad saying about the sleeping figure oh she's she looks really beautiful lying there and i was like oh wow thanks dad it's like it's actually a guy (laughs) and so that you know that was kind of interesting as well and i sort of liked the way that i could sort of you know play around with that so you were you know you were it was sort of yeah gender fluidity you weren't sure whether it was a man or a woman but it didn't really matter because it was about the spectacle but I think that, you know, now it's like there's, I think society is a lot more open and, and you know, it, it, people are able to be themselves more. I, I'm not sure if it is or if it's just more spoken about. And I, I suppose yeah. the reason I'm putting where we are now and where you were in the 90s together is it seems like you were trying to have your voice and make your voice heard. Uh, at a time where it wasn't a voice anyone wanted to hear in the same way they do now. And I, I find it quite remarkable that, um, you know, I mentioned Rashid Johnson earlier. He, he talks about medium specificity and not wanting to adhere to that and masculinity and dealing with the masculine issue and what it's like living in a, the world as a man. And I, I think of your work and I'm like, wait a minute, Carl Hopgood was doing this in the 90s. Right, yeah. I think I, I think, I just felt free to just to be able to sort of make that kind of work and not have the you know the weight of other people's sort of opinions or you know I just had permission to do it. I just gave myself permission to do it, and I wasn't afraid. 
So that's interesting that you weren't afraid. Uh, this idea of going into your fears seems to be something that you're quite willing to do. I, I admire that about you and your work. Now you were born in Wales and you now live in Los Angeles and you went to Goldsmith. Can you tell me about your creative process and your journey from Wales to London to Los Angeles? Well, um, I was, I was born, um, I lived in a, I was brought up on a farm in Wales and, um, obviously I was around animals and we had horses and it was, you know, it was like a, it was a, it was a great time. It was very, you know, very simple. And, but I, you know, had all these ideas that I wanted to be an artist. And so I w did a foundation course in Cardiff and, which was which was really amazing and then i heard about goldsmith this place where you could you know basically do whatever you wanted and so i was like okay well maybe i could you know go there and i remember people thinking you know saying to me at foundation do you think you know you think you'll get in are you good enough i said i just want to go there and i'm you know i sort of put it out there that i was that that's what i really wanted to do and um it really changed my life you know it was three of the best years of my life because it was going to like London. It was sort of the big city compared to what I was used to living in the countryside. And it was just really inspiring and to have but, the, you know, but while sorry. you were in the countryside, your life was exposed to great talent. I, I mean, my understanding is your family was friends with Richard Burton. Um, yeah. My, well, my, my best friend at school, his um, aunt and uncle brought him up and they, yeah, they were very good friends with Richard Burton. So he used to bring Elizabeth Taylor um, over to, you know, over to the house. So you're not saying it and I have to ask. So you've met, you've met Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor at your house in Cardiff. Well, it, was, it wasn't, um, it wasn't actually at my house. It was actually at their house but yeah it was kind of pretty pretty inspiring that would be something that would make me know i could get out of a small town and onto something better i, I, I know you're being very modest but i'm guessing you either went to their house but somehow you were in the same room with them and it was, breathing the same air as burton and taylor yeah it was pretty amazing i've got to say it was and you know, and it did. It, it, it was inspiring as well because then I sort of got introduced, you know, to know about people's work like Andy Warhol, and you know, I knew all these other That's artists. That's right, because Warhol you know, was doing Taylor's portrait. Exactly. So, um, and I, I love Andy Warhol. He's one of my heroes. You know, sort of. We have that in common. Yeah, Carl. I mean, I, I remember when I went to the show, they had a, the Tate Modern, which was so inspiring. And seeing pieces that you don't normally see, like the silver floating pillows. And I was, I'd heard about them, and I'd seen photographs of them, but I'd never, you know, in real life experienced it. And that was pretty amazing to see. Oh, that. you know what? They're all taped to the ceiling for COVID. Oh, no. Yeah. But what That's... a great exhibition. I went at oh. least 20 times. Uh, to Amazing. taking clients as well. And I tell you, every time I went, another aspect, uh, and Korsh knows this because we produced the show and he'd be like, you went again? But every yeah. time I went, I'd see another something that I wasn't aware of, uh, whether it was the work he did with 
vacuum cleaners that must have been something Jeff Koons saw. Oh, absolutely, or, yes. Yeah, or the, the work he did with transgendered people. Um, the fact that just he managed a band, you know, there's just so much to him that yeah. you can't even fathom. And I can see how you would be inspired by someone like him. His television show, 15 Minutes with Andy Warhol, Oh, really? Yeah, amazing. It, it I mean, was profoundly inspirational, even on the 20th time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when we were talking before about, you know, the different mediums that I use, and I, and I said, you know, we were allowed to do that at Goldsmiths, but I think he was one of the, well, the artist that made me realise that, yeah, you could do all these things, but you can still have the same sort of ideas but you can just express them in all different ways and still be taken seriously and and enter the art dialogue the the floating Sorry, silver clouds did you know the backstory is it was andy warhol who was never let into the popular group of artists at the time he was always kept on the margins yeah. castelli didn't yeah. value him in the same way he did rauschenberg and johns i'm sure you know the story yeah but the floating the silver floating clouds were in response to Donald Judd. Oh, that's fascinating. I actually didn't know that. I didn't that makes, either. That, that was the great sense. curation of the Tate Modern show. Right. Yes. That's fascinating. I mean, he, you know, in many ways he really was, you know, he was an outsider when I sort of, you know, identify with that, you know, he was also, he also was brought up on a farm, Andy Warhol. So I, you know, that outsider element of not being in the art world or not having, you know, family in the art world or, you know, it's sort of, I relate to that. I know. And this was curated to tell the immigrant story. And yeah. it certainly did tell that, which I'm sure I identify with. I'm sure you identify with. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So from Goldsmiths to L.A., you went to L.A. in 2004? No, I went to, um, I moved to LA in 2015. So fairly recently, I've been here almost five years. And what prompted the move? I really felt like it, like I'd, I'd been back and forth and I'd sort of always been inspired, partly initially through sort of seeing David Hockney paintings, you know, and seeing, you know, these sort of, you know, Peter getting out of Nick's pool and those paint, and I was like, well, it's beautiful here and sort of always inspired by it. And then I sort of got to 14. I was like, I, you know, I just really want to have a change. I was feeling like it was so dark in London and, the, you know, the rat race of being there. And I just wanted to just go to a new place. And I'd heard that, you know, there was, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of it, you know, the art art world here was sort of, you know, really interesting and a, di a different slice of life from how it was in New York and London. And a lot of my friends moved to New York, um, and but I didn't want to do that sort of sidestep. I just wanted to like, completely do something different and be yeah, free to the do new what frontier. I the new yeah. frontier of the art world has always <clears throat> been the West Coast in Los Angeles. I'm not yeah. surprised you went there. I feel the same way about Los Angeles after London. Right. And I think, you know, I think people were very snobby about it. They're like, why do you want to do that? And especially because my you... New York. 
That's exactly you, why you want to do it. <laughs> exactly. You know, because it's a rebel in me. It's like, because I, because I can and I want to, it's like, you know, just, yeah. it, just that. Yeah. Because you can and you want to, and the old Hollywood architecture and mythology around masculinity, that I I get the whole thing. But how do you end up living in John Wayne's apartment? Oh well, that's quite an interesting story because I was friends with a, a set designer called Bradley Garlock, and he actually lived in the building which was on Harper Avenue, and op opposite that house was where Marilyn Monroe lived. And um, so the people that owned the apartment or had the apartment in the building where I lived were friends with John Wayne. So he would come down on his horse, get really, really drunk, leave the horse in the courtyard and, and sleep in my bedroom. This is just too good. <laughs> I know. Did you just so say I... that? <laughs> what? Sorry? That's amazing. <laughs> Because there, from there, I go at... right to the stag horns, the antlers that you do. Right. And I know right. there's no link chronologically, but I can see how everything kind of works together. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of, that was one of my first commissions that I had here for a photographer. And I was telling him about my work and the sleeping figure and the projections. And, you know, and I sort of like, you know, the battle between the head and the heart and, you know, the, the the stag and he was like, why don't you make one? I'll commission it. So I sort of, I wanted to sort of cover it in gold leaf and, and, and like I did with the film projections, it sort of got um, wrapped around the film, the image when it was projected onto the sculpture. I wanted to do the same with the gold leaf to preserve it. And, um, and then he, we ha he had a huge house like in Gattaca, you walk down the spiral stairs and he put a shelf up and the, the figures just sleeping on on the shelf with the, these huge gold antlers that are just sort of hanging down. So it was, you know, the, these possibilities that I was excited about. You know, so you could sort of come and people would like instantly embrace you. And as a, you know, being being an outsider and being an immigrant, you know what I mean? It's like I just felt like I had all these opportunities, which was pretty amazing. Yeah, I. I... I believe that an artist manifests things in the world that didn't exist before. So they are truly creators. They make ideas and your imagination manifest. Uh, sometimes they tap into a collective unconscious, uh, yeah. sometimes mythologies, sometimes it's just reproducing what they see in reality. You seem yeah. to be a mix of all of those elements uh you seem to be interpreting the now the past and the world of myth and psychology simultaneously right. i think yeah thank you i think you know i think the past and the present and the future and dreams are all sort of aspects that i bring into my work i remember i did went on a trip it must have been about 15 years ago with Jack Pearson, who I love his work and I love him as a you know artist and person and friend. And we went for a trip to Turkey and we went to Istanbul and went up to the Bosphorus and we saw the whirling dervishes, which we were talking about before about my Turkish delight 
um, piece, which is the projection onto the gold porcelain beer cans of the whirling dervishes. Yeah, I love it. And them. it was very much, but I made, I went there and I, we filmed that a long time ago, but then I sort of, I was like, that's a memory from the past that I want to bring back to now and combine it with these gold porcelain beer cans that I made. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with them, but they were just there at the studio. And I was like, how about we project that onto those, just like I did with the can-can dancers and who I'd filmed in a nightclub with my friends. But then I was like, hold on, this works here. And sort of, I don't know, the ability to sort of have things there and make mistakes and then, you know, go back in time and bring ideas from the past to the, to the present and then to the future, creating these And ideas from fantasy world. into reality. Yes. Just, you know, just I think, you know, like in Star Wars or with Princess Leia in the hologram, I'm just sort of being inspired by things like that. Or, you know, in Superman, when the um, the evil sort of bad guys got expelled into space in, and trapped inside mirrors and that sort of fantasy, which is otherworldliness, which is what very much what my work is, you know, about, I suppose. Well, it escaping. seems that your work is also about making uh, the impossible seem possible or making a moment in time last forever. Yeah, definitely. And I, and I think sort of that illusion, you know, and you sort of create illusions of those moments in time, but then you can, you can see how it's working, but you sort of overlook the 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 projector and and the sort of way it's done and you get seduced by the image um and again the loops is the same thing like making these sort of like fantasies last you know forever in a way yeah like in the celluloid sort of world so i'm going back to some of the artists who influenced you the artists like andy warhol who we know had his first proper gallery show in los angeles at fun gallery David Hawkeney, who certainly was able to embrace a new identity when he moved to Los Angeles, uh, he established an incredible collector base. Uh, and then now you've moved there and through lockdown, you had uh, central windows at the Maddox Gallery. LA is did, known yeah. as a commuter or a drive-by community. so. In my mind, nothing could be more advantageous to a Los Angeles artist than a window front exhibition. Oh, absolutely. It was fabulous. So, I mean, we firstly, can you tell the listeners what was in the windows, where the Maddox Gallery in Los Angeles is, what was in the windows, and the response you got from it? Sure. So, um, so the Maddox Gallery is on Robertson and Beverly, which is actually which is West, in West Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah. West Hollywood, exactly. And it's in a really fun area where you've got Stella McCartney, B&B Italia, lots of interior design and fashion stores around. So it's sort of, but it's also a main road. So you get a lot of traffic sort of coming, you know, back and forth. And um, so I I had two pieces there. One of the pieces we, we put in just before lockdown and then we sort of, and then everything sort of closed, but the gallery obviously it was right in the, I was lucky enough to have the piece right in the window. 
And um, it was the piece is called Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. And it's neon words that are falling out of a box spring mattress. They're rising and falling. Um, and they're sort of, you know, like dreams, memory, words that you have in racing around in your mind from perhaps the night before, from, you know, memories from the past, from a hedonistic past or, you know, aspirations for the future. And it's all these sort of neon multicolored words that are falling out of a bed. So it was right in the window. And uh, uh, even though everywhere else was boarded up, there was so much traffic, people would be looking in and posting it on Instagram. And so it was a real beacon of sort of hope. And I don't know, just people, it really resonated with people because you could, you know, you used to be able to go out socializing, but this was like a memorial to those days, I suppose. Yeah, people became more serious about the way they looked at art during lockdown, in my opinion. I think it was less about champagne parties and red carpet than about really getting involved with the art. And, Absolutely. And on that note, there's something that you'll know, the different way that neon light is perceived in London as to the way it's perceived in Los Angeles. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like the grit and glitz, you know, very much like being in so like being in Soho when before we were talking about um, my London days and I was lucky enough to be a member at the Groucho Club and I've got I gave them a couple of art pieces and I got lifetime membership. So but we would always hang out in Soho and, you know, all the lights and the, you know, the seedy sort of places and Raymond Review and all those. It had very much that edge about it. By Was the way, LA? we're recording from there now. <laughs> exactly. Oh, really lovely. I, I mean, I really wish I was there too. But although your guys are in lockdown now, aren't you? Mm, so it's you, not the same as the first lockdown, but yeah. But those days, you know, of of you know that when Raymond Review Bar was open, and I mean, I think it's. I think they've reopened it now, haven't they? I'm not yes. Sure. Yeah. Which is exciting. But, it, but I think the thing is, like, neon in London represents something seedy, uh, something alternative, Absolutely. something naughty and, you know, yeah. nighttime. And the British love to be bad at night. And in Absolutely. Hollywood, neon means there's a star coming and there's glamour and glitz. Yeah. And, it's, and it's funny because it's a marked difference. It, although the everyone speaks oh, the nice same language yes, yeah nice the cultural Absolutely. nuances and the differences between los angeles and london are huge yeah and i think you know that sort of what i was saying about the grit and the glitz of, of that and um it's you know yeah it's always like celebrity the neons about celebrity or hotels and signs and glamour so it's the you know complete stark opposite to to the, what it is seen as in London, and I feel like in LA so, people are more they're sort of a lot more prudish as well in many ways. We're very sort of open and we you know in our conversations we use swear words like you know and here it's very different. You sort of have to be careful sometimes what you say. It was like I was watching Adele the other day and she was like, 
had, had the swear box having to be careful that she didn't say the C word. It's like The C word is it, never said in North America. People don't realize no. that the C word is never said. And here people say it to their friends. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly. I know. So I had to watch that one when I first moved here too. But, um, so but the, yeah, I wanted no. to, to say that with David Hockney and Andy Warhol, I noticed that when you uh, present yourself, you've developed a persona. And I'm wondering if persona or performance is becoming part of what you want to incorporate into your art making practice. Well, I did do um, a performance piece at the White Cubicle Gallery um, at the George and Dragon pub, which um, was curated by Pablo de la Barra. And I did, yeah, I was, I did a performance piece that night and I'd made these like ceramic tiles. They had all different artists that, you know, did this exhibition. Wolfgang Tillmans did one um, and the Websters did one. And um, I made these ceramic tiles of all the, the sort of uh, sex worker ads from the back of the, the magazines, because at that time you would, they had chat lines. So you would, to meet people, you would like phone up these chat lines and it, all these adverts would be in the back of the, of the magazines, the fanzines, I suppose. And so, and I wanted to become one of these sort of go-go dancers, I suppose, for the night. So I became, it was like Mr. Ben. Do you know the, you know the um, yes. cartoon Mr. Ben? So I, I, I was obsessed with that. Show. Yeah, I was obsessed with that show. And um, so, yeah, so it became this sort of go-go dance. And I did this this song and I danced on top of a barrel and it was filmed for transmission. So it was kind of, I liked that element of, you know, sort of being able to do that too. You know, it was, it was real, it was fun. I also noticed that you like to be photographed without, without being fully clothed, which I find really interesting considering generally it's women who are photographed without clothes on. I, I really smile when I see the number of photographs you've had with just bikini briefs on. Well, I, you know what, you, the thing you wouldn't, I am actually quite shy as a person. So, and I have to like, to get out of myself, I, photographers ask me to do things and then we're in LA. So it's all, you know, we're always like, by the pool and they're like let's just do like in the speedos or you know and i'm like it gives me like a sense of confidence i suppose because it takes me outside of my comfort zone yeah you're putting on um, your artist gear like the wig yeah. like andy's wig or exactly. hockney's glasses you're putting on your artist persona but instead with you you're taking it off and you become this mythical man manator i don't know what i'm saying but <laughs> you become something else it's quite remarkable Thank you. Well, the thing is, I, with the sculpture I was talking to you about earlier, the stag, the sleeping golden stag, I actually, that was my body. So I wanted to, because I was doing these casts of all these other people. And I was like, you know what? I feel like it should be me. I should, I should do it. It should be like a portrait. So I wanted to do that as well, sort of like, which was scary. You know, it was like, but if I'm putting these other people through this, I should do it myself and see how that you know, see how that feels. And it was sort of liberating. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Um, I've got to say it was David Hockney. I was just so inspired by him, his sort of 
paintings of California. Um, I just, I it was, I was just so seduced by his work. I think he, he was a, a big sort of inspiration to me. And also, um, I was going to say, obviously Andy Warhol, who we talked about before. So I, I sort of would like to choose two. Andy Warhol and David Hockney. Which historical artist do you turn to when you're looking in history? I gotta say, well, can I say two or is that really annoying? No, go ahead. I've gotta say. I'm not big okay, on rules. I've gotta say, okay, good, me neither. Or labels. Um, I gotta say Duchamp and I've gotta say Cotan who did the Spanish 17th century painter who did all the beautiful fruit hanging in the pantry. That was, a, I was obsessed with that. And when I was at Goldsmiths, it was very sort of theoretical and I just loved all the old, the art history and the, the painters and people were always really surprised, but that's, I was just obsessed with how realistic they painted it and the illusory qualities and the fact that they were hanging for a reason so they didn't go off and rot, basically. Carl, so, if you um, could live with one work of art, what would it be? Um, if I, oh God, that's a really hard question. Um, you know what? I would, I would quite happily live with Andy Warhol's clouds, I think, just floating around my apartment. Beautiful. You've moved to LA recently. Which museum or gallery do you visit the most frequently? And you can choose oh. two. Okay, thanks. I was going to. I love the broad, <laughs> uh, <laughs> obviously. And I love LACMA. I mean, I love the Jeff Kuhn stuff at the broad. I mean, it's the tulips. I, they're just so beautiful and seductive. And I just... I can spend so much time just sort of looking at, at that work. It's just so beautiful. So I think I, I, I probably sort of start there. And I love the piece that, you know, the neon America. You know that piece, the black neon. So I think that, yeah, that, those, those sort of two pieces are what, where I would start at. And the good thing, also the thing about LACMA as well, is they have um, a great bookshop. So I love going through all the books. And at the Broad, I love going to the bookshop there because they have the multiples as well. And also, oh, I forgot, there's one other place that I really want to let you know about called the Hammer Museum, where they had um, the, the Sarah Lucas uh, exhibition, who I also love her work too, by the way. And, I also um, love the Hammer. Oh, it's just such a wonderful place to go i mean and they have a lovely restaurant there as well and um it's a great space there's so i mean we're so lucky here we've got so there's so many like great places you know to go to and there's hauser and worth you know there's you know the, the the sort of combination of the commercial galleries and the museums i think you know i think we're lucky here in la not as sport as you are in so london but we're lucky so, Carl, thank you so much for chatting to us and being patient with the COVID technology. Uh, where can people find you, see your work, and what's coming up 
for you as much as anyone can predict in the next year or so. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And um, you can see my work at the Maddox Gallery in Los Angeles. I've got two pieces on show there. Um, and also on my website, carlhockwood.com. And then I'm also doing a show in 2021 at the gallery called Fragile World. So I'm excited about that. And my Instagram is at Carl Hopgood. Do you have a book coming out as well, Carl? Yes, I'm doing um, a book about a piece I made called My Heart is Open, which I made during lockdown. And it's um, a stack of chairs with the neon words saying, my heart is open. And we're going to take that piece to different locations um, that have all been closed and photograph them. What kind of dog do you have? Oh, uh, that um, I've got. Uh, that's a Sheba. My partner's got a Sheba, and I've got a poodle. Oh, poodles are so smart! I knew I liked you. Two dog household. Well, your dog needs you. Thank you for joining us this morning at that early hour in Los Angeles. And I look forward to meeting you one day. I hope I can see the show in twenty twenty one. Oh, I would love Thank that. Thank you, Carl. Thank you so it's much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Bye bye. You've been listening to A Private View. This is Maeve Doyle. If you like the show, please subscribe and thank you for listening.